Chapter Twenty Seven of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The scheme of a banquet to celebrate the initial success of every other week expanded in Fulkerson's fancy into a series. Instead of the publishing and editorial force, with certain of the more representative artists and authors sitting down to a modest supper in Mrs. Leighton's parlours, he conceived of a dinner at Delmonico's, with the principal literary and artistic people throughout the country as guests, and an inexhaustible hospitality to reporters and correspondents, from whose paragraphs, prophetic and historic, would flow weeks before and after the first of the series. He said the thing was a new departure in magazines. It amounted to something in literature as radical as the American Revolution in politics. It was the idea of self-government in the arts, and it was this idea that had never yet been fully developed in regard to it. That was what must be done in the speeches at the dinner, and the speeches must be reported. Then it would go like wildfire. He asked March whether he thought Mr. Depew could be got to come. Mark Twain, he was sure, would come. He was a literary man. They ought to invite Mr. Everts and the Cardinal and the leading Protestant divines. His ambition stopped at nothing, nothing but the question of expense. There he had to wait the return of the elder Dryfoos from the West, and Dryfoos was still delayed at Moffat and Fulkerson openly confessed that he was afraid he would stay there till his own enthusiasm escaped in other activities, other plans. Fulkerson was as little likely as possible to fall under a superstitious subjection to another man, but March could not help seeing that in this possible measure Dryfoos was Fulkerson's fetish. He did not revere him, March decided, because it was not in Fulkerson's nature to revere anything. He could like and dislike, but he could not respect. Apparently, however, Dryfoos daunted him somehow, and besides the homage which those who have not pay to those who have, Fulkerson rendered Dryfoos the tribute of a feeling which March could only define as a sort of bewilderment. As well as March could make out, this feeling was evoked by the spectacle of Dryfoos's unfailing luck, which Fulkerson was fond of dazzling himself with. It perfectly consisted with a keen sense of whatever was sordid and selfish in a man on whom his career must have had its inevitable effect. He liked to philosophize the case with March, to recall Dryfoos as he was when he first met him, still somewhat in the sap, at Moffat, and to study the processes by which he imagined him to have been dried into the hardened speculator without even the pretense to any advantage but his own in his ventures. He was aware of painting the character too vividly, and he warned March not to accept it exactly in those tints, but to subdue them and shade it for himself. He said that where his advantage was not concerned, there was ever so much good in Dryfoos, and that if in some things he had grown inflexible, he had expanded in others to the full measure of the vast scale on which he did business. It had seemed a little odd to March that a man should put money into such an enterprise as every other week, and go off about other affairs, not only without any sign of anxiety, but without any sort of interest. But Fulkerson said that was the splendid side of Dryfoos. He had a courage, a magnanimity, that was equal to the strain of any such uncertainty. He had faced the music once for all when he asked Fulkerson what the thing would cost in the different degrees of potential failure, and then he had gone off, leaving everything to Fulkerson and the younger Dryfoos, 
with the instruction simply to go ahead and not to bother him about it. Fulkerson called that pretty tall for an old fellow who used to bewail the want of pigs and chickens to occupy his mind. He alleged it as another proof of the versatility of the American mind, and of the grandeur of institutions and opportunities that let every man grow to his full size, so that any man in America could run the concern if necessary. He believed that old Dryfoos could step into Bismarck's shoes and run the German Empire at ten days' notice, or about as long as it would take him to go from New York to Berlin. But Bismarck would not know anything about Dryfoos's plans till Dryfoos got ready to show him his hand. Fulkerson himself did not pretend to say what the old man had been up to since he went west. He was at Moffat first, and then he was at Chicago, and then he had gone out to Denver to look after some mines he had out there, and a railroad or two, and now he was at Moffat again. He was supposed to be closing up his affairs there, but nobody could say. Fulkerson told March the morning after Dryfoos returned that he had not only not pulled out at Moffat, but had gone in deeper, ten times deeper than ever. He was in a royal good humour, Fulkerson reported, and was going to drop into the office on his way up from the street, March understood Wall Street, that afternoon. He was tickled to death with every other week so far it had gone, and was anxious to pay his respects to the editor. March accounted for some rhetoric in this, but let it flatter him, and prepared himself for a meeting about which he could see that Fulkerson was only less nervous than he had shown himself about the public reception of the first number. It gave March a disagreeable feeling of being owned, and of being about to be inspected by his proprietor, but he fell back upon such independence as he could find in the thought of those two thousand dollars of income beyond the caprice of his owner, and maintained an outward serenity. He was a little ashamed afterward of the resolution it had cost him to do so. It was not a question of Dryfoos's physical presence. That was rather effective than otherwise, and carried a suggestion of moneyed indifference to convention in the grey business suit of provincial cut, and the low, wide-brimmed hat of flexible black felt. He had a stick with an old-fashioned top of buckhorn, worn smooth and bright by the palm of his hand, which had not lost its character and fat, and which had a history of former work in its enlarged knuckles, though it was now as soft as March's, and must once have been small even for a man of Mr. Dryfoos's stature. He was below the average size. But what struck March was the fact that Dryfoos seemed furtively conscious of being a country person, and of being aware that in their meeting he was to be tried by other tests than those which would have availed him as a shrewd speculator. He evidently had some curiosity about March, as the first of his kind whom he had encountered, some such curiosity as the country school trustee feels, and tries to hide in the presence of the new schoolmaster. But the whole affair was, of course, on a higher plane. On the one side Dryfoos was much more a man of the world than March was, and he probably divined this at once, and rested himself upon the fact in a measure. It seemed to be his preference that his son should introduce them, for he came upstairs with Conrad, and they had fairly made acquaintance before Fulkerson joined them. Conrad offered to leave them at once, but his father made him stay. I reckon Mr. March and I haven't got anything so private to talk about that we want to keep it from the other partners. Well, Mr. March, are you getting used to New York yet? It takes a little time. 
Oh, yes, but not so much time as most places. Everybody belongs more or less in New York. Nobody has to belong here altogether. Yes, that is so. You can try it and go away if you don't like it a good deal easier than you could from a smaller place. Wouldn't make so much talk, would it? He glanced at March with a jocose light in his shrewd eyes. That is the way I feel about it all the time just visiting. Now, it wouldn't be that way in Boston, I reckon. You couldn't keep on visiting there your whole life, said March. Dryfoos laughed, showing his lower teeth in a way that was at once simple and fierce. Mr. Fulkerson didn't hardly know as he could get you to leave. I suppose you got used to it there. I never been in your city. I had got used to it, but it was hardly my city except by marriage. My wife's a Bostonian. She's been a little homesick here, then, said Dryfoos, with a smile of the same quality as his laugh. Less than I expected, said March. Of course she was very much attached to our old home. I guess my wife won't ever get used to New York, said Dryfoos, and he drew in his lower lip with a sharp sigh. But my girls like it. They're young. You've never been out our way yet, Mr. March, out west? Well, only for the purpose of being born and brought up. I used to live in Crawfordsville, and then Indianapolis. Indianapolis is bound to be a great place, said Dryfoos. I remember now Mr. Fulkerson told me you was from our state. He went on to brag of the West, as if March were an Easterner and had to be convinced. You ought to see all that country. It's a great country. Oh, yes, said March, I understand that. He expected the praise of the great West to lead up to some comment on every other week, and there was abundant suggestion of that topic in the manuscripts, proofs of letterpress and illustrations, with advanced copies of the latest numbers strewn over his table. But Dreyfus apparently kept himself from looking at these things. He rolled his head about on his shoulders to take in the character of the room, and said to his son, "'You didn't change the woodwork, after all.' "'No, the architect thought we had better let it be, unless we meant to change the whole place. He liked its being old-fashioned.' "'I hope you feel comfortable here, Mr. March,' the old man said, bringing his eyes to bear upon him again, after their tour of inspection. "'Too comfortable for a working man,' said March, and he thought that this remark must bring them to some talk about his work. But the proprietor only smiled again. "'I guess I shan't lose much on this house,' he returned, as if musing aloud. "'This downtown property is coming up. Business is getting in on all these side streets.' I thought I paid a pretty good price for it, too. He went on to talk of real estate, and March began to feel a certain resentment at his continued avoidance of the only topic in which they could really have a common interest. You live down this way somewhere, don't you? the old man concluded. Yes, I wish to be near my work. March was vexed with himself for having recurred to it, but afterward he was not sure but Dryfoos shared his own diffidence in the matter, and was waiting for him to bring it openly into the talk. At times he seemed wary and masterful, and then March felt that he was being examined and tested, and others so simple that March might well have fancied that he needed encouragement, and desired it. He talked of his wife and daughters in a way that invited March to say friendly things of his family which appeared to give the old man first an undue pleasure, and then a final distrust. 
At moments he turned, with an effect of finding relief in it, to his son, and spoke to him across March of matters which he was unacquainted with. He did not seem aware that this was rude, but the young man must have felt it so. He always brought the conversation back, and once at some cost to himself, when his father made it personal. "'I want to make a regular New York business man out of that fellow,' he said, to March, pointing at Conrad with his stick. "'You suppose I'm ever going to do it?' "'Well, I don't know,' said March, trying to fall in with the joke. "'Do you mean nothing but a business man?' The old man laughed at whatever latent meaning he fancied in this, and said, "'You think he would be a little too much for me there?' well i've seen enough of em to know it don't always take a large pattern of a man to do a large business but i want him to get the business training and then if he wants to go into something else he knows what the world is anyway eh oh yes march assented with some compassion for the young man reddening patiently under his father's comment dryfoos went on as if his son were not in hearing now that boy wanted to be a preacher what does a preacher know about the world he preaches against when he's been brought up a preacher? He don't know so much as a bad little boy in his Sunday school. He knows about as much as a girl. I always told him, you be a man first, and then you be a preacher, if you want to, eh? Precisely. March began to feel some compassion for himself in being witness of the young fellow's discomfort under his father's homily. When we first come to New York, I told him, now, here's your chance to see the world on a big scale. You know already what work and saving and steady habits and sense will bring a man to. You don't want to go round among the rich, you want to go among the poor, and see what laziness and drink and dishonesty and foolishness will bring men to. And I guess he knows, about as well as anybody, and if he ever goes to preaching, he'll know what he's preaching about. The old man smiled his fierce, simple smile and in his sharp eyes March fancied contempt of the ambition he had balked in his son. The present scene must have been one of many between them, ending in meek submission on the part of the young man whom his father, perhaps without realizing his cruelty, treated as a child. March took it hard that he should be made to suffer in the presence of a coordinate power like himself, and began to dislike the old man out of proportion to his offence, which might have been mere want of taste, or an effect of mere embarrassment before him. But evidently, whatever rebellion his daughters had carried through against him, he had kept his dominion over this gentle spirit unbroken. March did not choose to make any response, but to let him continue, if he would, entirely upon his own impulse. End of chapter 27